Welcome to the Non-Op Series for the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, where EMPs and drilling capital meet the minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Travis Pace, CEO of Fortuna Resources, a private equity-backed company focused on non-op in the lower 48. During the episode, Travis walks through his unconventional career path and how it began and has circled back to the Delaware Basin, as well as Fortuna's current strategy and how it's evolved in the non-op space alongside their capital partner, North Hudson Resource Partners. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Travis had to say. All right, Travis, welcome to the podcast, part of our new non-op series. So I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Tim. It's good to see you and I'm excited to be here. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, no, it's the, the world's a small place and, you know, we all get to know each other over the years. Who would have thought or years ago in Bogota, we'd end up here on a podcast talking about non-op, but. Yeah, no kidding. Both of us back in the lower 48, complete 180 from what we were doing back then, but <laughs> it's a small world. Good to stay connected to you. You bet. So for, for those who don't know you, let's give a little context. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And how did you get into oil and gas? And what's kind of your your trade? Are you land guy? Are you finance guy? I'll, I'll hand it over. Yeah, sure. I was actually born in Lubbock, but uh, I'm the oldest of four kids. My uh, dad played football at Texas Tech. And uh, whenever he was out of school, got married to my mom and he got a bank job in Lubbock. So they uh, lived out there. But it was really, I mean, I think I was a few months old when we moved to Fort Worth. So really hometown for me is Fort Worth. I graduated high school from a town on the west side of Fort Worth that's actually quite a bit better known now than it was back then called Lido. But really for me, most of my life, my childhood was actually in Fort Worth. My some my younger brothers and sisters spent more of their formative years in Alito. So they they kind of call Alito home. And I do too. But generally I say that I'm from Fort Worth. That's kind of where I grew up. So yeah, I went, you know, grew up there, had a great childhood. My dad was uh, mostly an entrepreneur or he, I mean, his whole career he was, he's always kind of had one foot in the oil business and one foot in the real estate business. And, you know, I was born in 1983. So from 83 to kind of 2000, 2001, when I left the house, those are some pretty rocky years for both of those industries. So, you know, I really kind of got like a live firsthand education of of just watching him go through all those trials and tribulations and just kind of massive ups and massive downs. And, and it was, you know, kind of just like a formative experience for me, but I went to Texas tech for my undergrad degree. I got a degree in English of all things. I, you know, just kind of, I'm sort of a book nerd at heart and I had always sort of been a book nerd and loved to read. And so I thought that I, honestly, I thought when I graduated, by the time I made up my mind and decided what I wanted to study and stick with with English literature. I was like, well, I'm just going to be a professor. That sounds really fun. And I'll have an academic career and uh, write books and kind of do that. I'm I'm glad that I didn't do that. I still kind of am a book nerd. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not an academic because I've discovered oil and gas. And it's just been such a tremendous and fun experience. But uh, so I, I got out of undergrad in 2006. And I spent a year abroad, just went that didn't really know or I wasn't quite ready to make a decision. So Went to New Zealand for a year, just kind of backpacked around and, you know, had different jobs to kind of pay for my just like time over there. So that was real fun. And when I came home, you know, it was sort of early 2007 and my dad was back, you know, had his oil and gas hat back on and he's like, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've, you know, I've been accepted to graduate school. I need to go to grad school to get my master's degree so that I can uh, be an English professor, but it doesn't start till the fall. And uh, he's like, okay, well, you got to work till then, you know, you can't, he's, he's not really like a freeloading kind of guy. So he said, come with me. I'm running a land crew. Um, This thing, the Barnett shale is happening. We're buying a lot of leases. So come on over. You know, I started working with him and uh, just riding around with him and riding around with some of his, his guys. And that was really the first time that I, I really just kind of discovered some of the, the legendary people in oil and gas. Cause there was these old timers that were my dad's buddies from way back in the day. And they're kind of half retired and he'd uh, persuaded them to, you know, come back to work to help him train a bunch of young guys like me, because back then in the Barnett, there's just, everybody was a landman because it was a good paying job, but nobody really knew how to be a landman because we're all straight up, straight out of college. And this was even kind of before. Well, what was the, what was the joke, right? I mean, when Chesapeake and, and Dale and others were recruiting, they would go to these campuses and they'd be like, you have a pulse, you can breathe. Yeah. Welcome to the old patch. You're a landman. Basically, right? that was basically it. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll train you up. So, so the deal was, you know, you had these old timers who r- really all they would do was 
drive around and tell stories. And so I'd be driving around with them and they're, and they're just telling stories, right? So it's, <laughs> and you hear the most unbelievable stuff ever. I mean, similar to your kitchen table war stories deal. That's just, is this real? And then once you kind of start to live it and I started to see some of my own stories, it's like, this is real. This is the wildest <laughs> thing that I'm living it right now. And I can't believe this is true. But anyway, so, you know, that was a, an interesting time because we were buying leases in, in Fort Worth, like in the town of Fort Worth. We were leasing for a company called uh, Paloma here. It's an in-cap company here in Houston. And my dad was running a land crew for them. So we put, you know, we're buying leases, we're competing a little bit. Chesapeake in the early days hadn't really got involved yet. So you didn't have the, I mean, we, we started out, we're paying, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand, maybe 5,000 bucks an acre. And then six months later, you're paying $35,000 an acre because Chesapeake had showed up and the uh, competition just got really hot. So XTO is in there, there's a few other companies. That was a fun time. I did that for like seven months. And then I had an opportunity and I just want to frame the context because it sounds like a short amount of time and it really was, but just, you got to understand how intense things were and how fast things were moving at that time and just how important it was. And everybody wanted to be in the Barnett Shale, right? So I had a, a friend of mine call me and his dad was a big real estate developer, big kind of money guy in Dallas. And he said, I want, to, he said, Hey, Travis, I uh, heard you're a land man. My dad wants, wants to put an operating company together and go buy some Barnett Shale leases in Dallas. I was like, oh, great. Well, you know, my dad has, he's a land man. He runs this crew. So I'll tell him. And I went and told my dad, I said, Hey, I got this guy, like maybe we can have a new client. And my dad, it was really cool. Cause I'd been working for seven months. He's like, Travis, this needs to be your deal. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm still waiting to get into graduate school. He's like, no, no, <laughs> he didn't discourage me from going to grad school, but he did really encourage me. He's like, you need to go, you need to go try to do this on your own. And I said, man, I don't think I'm ready for that at all. But he, he really encouraged me to do it. And that's the formation of uh, my first company called Tira Majors. So I did do it. I went and started Tira Majors as a land broker. <laughs> and that was, we probably started that in like late 2007. My brother had just got out of school. So I was his first boss, you know, with my lengthy career experience. <laughs> hired him, hired all my buddies, like everybody I could think of. <laughs> and then four months later, five months, whatever it was, the world falls apart. You know, natural gas crashes. And our, you know, we had bought a few leases and stuff, but we didn't, we weren't able to put a whole lot of stuff together. So, you know, the, the real estate guy who wanted to dip his toe into oil and gas quickly dipped his toe out. He's like, oh, this didn't work. And by the way, I'm not paying you guys just because this was like a quick little experiment for you. So, <laughs> so it's kind of one of those deals where, you know, I started this company. I was positive. I didn't know what I was doing. I was correct that I didn't know what I was doing. And then it's just like immediately everybody hates me because I can't pay them. I'm like, they're like, we're going to see you. I'm like, guys, I live in a rent house and I've got a note on my truck. I, I have no assets. I, I, I don't, what are you going to sue me for? I don't have any money either. So anyway, that was the start of, of Tira Majors. After that, I was fortunate that we were able to, like in mid 2008, we were able to get on a ticket with EOG. And EOG was still, you know, kind of actively running title and not really buying a lot of leases, but we moved out to the Western Fort Worth Basin and buying leases out there. And that was fun. We did that for about a year, maybe, you know, slowly, we just kind of worked, worked our way out West. I had enrolled again at Texas Tech. I, by this point, I had skipped going to grad school for, you know, to be a professor and I committed to business. And I thought I've never had any training in business, finance, accounting, anything like that. So, I so the, 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 the academia dream is out and you're saying, I'm going to go into business now, but I need to be more sophisticated because I really don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So uh, my, another friend of mine had just signed up for a weekend MBA program at Texas Tech. It was kind of a new executive program that they were doing. He said, hey, Trav, you, sh you should come do this. And I said, okay. So I signed up for that. It was an affordable program, and it was a way for me to just learn some of the basics of finance and law and stuff like that. So that was a really cool program. I was doing that on the weekends, and I was working for EOG west of Fort Worth and slowly kind of moved where I was working out west, out west, out west, until finally I was in the Permian. So we did a little bit of work in the Permian, I think in kind of early 2009, one of my buddies, I was on this land crew with this guy and we kind of had become buddies and he, he just like left one day and said, I'm going to go do this other thing. So I called him and I was like, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got this guy that um, I think we can, I'm going to flip some leases to. He says he's want to put some money to work. He doesn't want to pay land crew, but he's just like, whatever I can find, I can put on a contract and flip to him and keep a margin. So that sounds pretty cool. I'll come, can I come do that with you? And he said, yeah. But, you know, I was just barely married and it was a little bit of a risk. I mean, I had some money saved up 
but not anything to speak of, just a few months of runway probably. So that was kind of the second iteration of, of Tierra Majors is that I left being a broker landman, went and started trying to buy leases. And this is like, this is kind of early, maybe Q2 of 2009. So really, and we're in the Delaware Basin. So really, really early, early wow. days of the Delaware Basin. It was just starting to, to get leased mostly for what they called the Leonard, which is, you know, we today think of as the Bone Springs. And uh, people were just kind of poking around, trying to get their hands on it, drilling some test wells, like what's the extent of this Bone Springs formation? And some of the big companies were out kind of scoping around, but not really trying to put positions together. And some of the smaller companies like Clayton Williams were starting to get geared up and, and put their positions together. And there were some other companies out of Dallas doing the same thing. So we had a few different people that, you know, we could, we could sell leases to. We had no idea though, where was good and where it was bad. I mean, we're just two, you know, halfway landmen who no geology, no geology, no engineering, no, no nothing. So, and we're kind of on our own trying to do the best we can to understand where we should buy leases that we can then sell to somebody. And for the most part, I think we did a pretty good job. We were able to put together several thousand acres and get them moved. And so that, that was a real fun experience. Did that for about a year and a half. And I had an opportunity to get a real job at Marathon and we needed to move to Houston. So Marathon was such a cool experience for me because at that point I probably had five years of experience, but all of it sort of, you know, halfway entrepreneurial, like sometimes working on my own, sometimes working as a land broker for other people, but never really got to see how the big company works and how they make decisions and how they allocate resources and all that. So it was, I was really excited about an opportunity to go do that. And when I got to Marathon, it was right when they were sort of, they had, they had spent the previous six months or so divesting a lot of their downstream and midstream international assets. And they wanted to make a pivot to be a nimble, you know, independent lower 48 shale player. And so they, um, they did all that and they kind of repositioned themselves and then started making some really big acquisitions in the Eagleford. We did about $4 billion worth of acquisitions in the Eagleford during the time that I was there. All of the acreage that we bought, um, or 90 plus percent of it was term. So it was not HBP. And so you just got to cover this thing up with rigs to meet all these obligations. And so when I joined, I was one of probably a wave of seven to 10 guys about my same age with my same level of experience. Most of us had not worked in-house before. And so we were having to learn how to do JOAs, learn how to run rigs, learn how to just manage drill schedules, which are always changing, but stay ahead and make sure that when a rig was getting ready to go to a location that we had title cleared, we had everything done, surface, everything was was in place. So so it was really fun, but it was it was real, real crazy. We had, I think we had 21 rigs running at that time and you know, obligations, leases expiring all over the place. So it was a real fun period. But I got, I was, I was at Marathon for about 18 months and really learned a lot, really enjoyed it, but realized kind of towards the end of that, that it wasn't probably going to be what I wanted to do for my whole career. I had a series of really, really awesome bosses there, you know, during just kind of like, whether they were formal kind of end of year review type talks or just sort of one-off having beers or lunch or whatever, I was, you know, just always kind of quizzing them about what opportunities might be like and stuff. And, and they kind of quickly saw, like, they're pretty open. You're, we understand and it's okay that you're not going to, you know, be a lifer here. So I was really comforted by that and they gave me a lot of support. So I told uh, my bosses, like, Hey, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave in three months. Cause I want to make sure that I don't leave you guys hanging. And I want to make sure that I train somebody to come in and take over the things that I'm working on and just make sure that I left on a good note. And so we worked out a really cool deal. And so we had just had our first child in 2012, Sophia, our daughter. And I told my wife, who is my wife's from Guatemala, and she grew up there, born and raised school here at TCU. And I had always had in the back of my head, you know, it'd be really fun to try to live in Guatemala and just see what that life would be like. So this is right around when I start to meet you, right? In this, it was a little before, because when you and I met, I was living in Guatemala. So this okay. is this is kind of leading up to how that came together. So. You know, we had our daughter and I remember my wife and I talked and I was like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to leave Marathon. I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to kind of make a commitment to that as, as my career for better or worse. Like, hope it works. And she, again, was super supportive of me. So I said, we just had a child and life's, you know, about like our responsibilities are about to increase a lot. Like if we're ever going to do something totally bananas, like move to another country and try it out, like now's the time to do it. So we decided to when we left Marathon, we were going to move to Guatemala and we did that. But before I left Marathon, I'm still at the same time in my head thinking, I'm kind of nervous. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to, 
I had some ideas of businesses that I would try to start and get into when I was down there and her family all lives there. So I knew I had a little bit of support from them. You know, I was, I was going to be on my own. So I kind of needed to be thinking about some ideas of what to do. And I, I didn't have any tremendous ones. So one day I was reading the newspaper and I read this article about these natural gas discoveries that had been made offshore Israel. And so one was the Tamar field, the smaller one. And then the Leviathan one was the bigger one. That was the Because that was Noble? Yeah. Yeah. So Noble had made these discoveries and the government of Israel and Noble and, and all these companies were, their situation was they had discovered these tremendous natural gas resources in their waters, but they'd never had any kind of an oil and gas industry in the history of their country. Right. And so uh, they reached out to the, the U.S. government in the Department of commerce. And they said, hey, will you guys organize a trade mission and bring over some experts from US oil and gas and kind of come over here for a week and let's meet them. Let's, we just need to meet some people to figure out we need some help building a oil and gas industry here in, in Israel. So, okay. So I read this article that the US Department of Commerce was putting this trade mission together. And I called, <laughs> I called up the guy who wrote it sort of on a whim. And I said, what is this? You know, explain to me what's going on. And he kind of explained the situation. He's like, well, we're trying to find people, you know, experts to come over. And so in my head, I'm like, well, definitely, this is an opportunity for me to say I'm an expert in, in only gas. And I asked him, I said, what are they looking for? What do they need? What are they, like, what kind of person are you looking for to go to Israel? And I said, well, I think if we could break it down into three buckets, it's we need people to go buy concessions and drill wells, you know, like Noble. We need people to build infrastructure, you know, like pipelines, and then work with the onshore electric company and all that stuff to kind of re- their whole onshore and, and offshore infrastructure to bring the gas onshore and then use it to, to power their, their industries and things. And then he said, the third thing is, is we need training. Like we need people to come over and actually Israel has some of the top scientists and engineering talent in the world. I mean, they've always been known for that, but they, none of them know anything about oil and gas. So, and I thought maybe, maybe I can do that. And so I went over there, you know, set up all these meetings and the state department, the commerce department would help you meet with people. So I met with a bunch of universities. And by the end of the trip, you know, I, I decided that the business model could be very similar to the land brokerage business model, which is what I started doing at Tier Majors. So this is like, you know, iteration three or four of Tier Majors. And I thought yeah, it's, I can... it's your personal LLC that you just kept in hibernation that you keep, you know, reactivating, right? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's going to be too expensive to spend 350 bucks to start another LLC. So I just kept Tier Majors <laughs> and kept repurposing it. So, you know, I went over there and, and the, the premise was, and I worked out this deal with the universities and some other businesses was, hey guys, I will basically broker retired experts to come over here and you guys bring the audience together. I'll bring the experts and we'll do like, you know, three to five day training courses on, you know, if you give me a room full of civil engineers, I'll give them a five day course on whatever, you know, some some specific element specific to petroleum engineering or natural gas, offshore drilling or, or something like that. And so that was kind of what we started doing in Israel. And then at the same time, so we did move to Guatemala. And, and I thought I need to find something to do here. I've got this kind of cool thing going on in, in Israel. And that's probably when I met you is I started to travel all over Latin America and go to all the conferences and stuff like that and say, hey, I've got this training business. I can do it for you too. You know, I'd go to Colombia and they were trying to build an FSRU or a uh, FLNG. I can't remember if it was an import or an export facility, but I met with those people like, can I come train your people to help just like a big corporation? Can I, can I train your folks in specifics of LNG? Or um, we went to, I think it was in Peru, there was a big transaction going on to buy into the pipeline. I can't remember the name of that, that takes gas out of the Camachea field and runs it over to uh, some of the export terminals on the West coast of Chile. So I was meeting with all those folks, trying to get training business and, and having some success. The, the real kind of engine was still in Israel. And then so, so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm traveling all over the place, going, you know, trying to drum up business. And then what I would do is just send down experts to do it. So now we're kind of getting towards the end of the tier majors chapter, but I had this training business that was going pretty well. And what happened was I started getting people asking me to, hey, like you're over here. The reason that we hired your firm is because we want you to train our people because we're building this LNG export terminal. So you're an American, like, can you help us raise money? And at the, up to this point, so far, it had kind of worked out for me to just always say, yeah, you know, to everything. <laughs> so, um, well, this makes more sense because Energy Council was always around finance and raising capital. So this is definitely probably 2014, 15. This is probably when we crossed paths. Yeah. Yeah. Mistaken, right. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, I, I thought, 
I, I kind of had that question enough times. I thought, you know, maybe I should try to, you know, that would be a really cool new business. And the, the idea was if I can do like one kind of project finance deal a year, even if it's smaller, 50 million, something like that. I mean, that's, that's basically like a year for me, right? I can just be sort of, that's all I need to do. And looking back, like I, I didn't realize that business is dominated by really big competitive players for a reason. So that's what caused me to move back to Houston. So we were in Guatemala for two years um, doing that. And then, you know, when we, when we decided we wanted to get more into the capital raising side and move back to Houston, I needed to get FINRA license and get affiliated with a broker dealer and all that stuff. And I partnered with some guys here in Houston who were retired executives from big, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And they kind of liked, liked the idea, but they had a lot more contacts and a lot more understanding of how that business works. And so, so we, you know, we kind of had this LNG commercial advisory business that we would help people structure their contracts in such a way, you know, as like, especially here in the U.S. where a lot of the LNG businesses at that time were different than they were in other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, you want to build an LNG facility, it's going to be on somebody big's balance sheet, right? But here in the U.S., the unique things is you had like entrepreneurial groups coming together and saying, we're going to build an LNG export facility and we're just going to scrap together. We're kind of, you know, the standard four or five dudes in a dream type deal and we'll go build this. And you're starting to see a lot of those today get some traction. It's taken a lot longer than I think any of them would have wanted, but guys like Venture Global, that's how they got started. Commonwealth LNG was a big client of mine for a long time and they're making a lot of progress. Vivek Chandra at Texas LNG, you know, I know that those yeah, guys- I love Vivek. Yeah. yeah. I first met him in Australia of all places. Yeah. But those were the kind of guys, you know, who were just sort of entrepreneurial bootstrapping their, you know, their, their LNG business, which was just such a new way to do it. So they, what they would do is they'd hire us. At this point, you know, we had enough of a, you know, suite of experts on all these different topics that we could advise them on. Here's how you need to design your commercial offtake agreement, starting with, you know, the early documents like the HOA and then moving into like an MOU and then all the way to an SBA. Here's how you need to do that to best position yourself to be able to raise the project financing capital that you need, because you can't really get the big dollars that you need actual like, you know, FID construction dollars until you've got contracts, can't get contracts until you're kind of able to demonstrate that you're real to these counterparties. So it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg. And the, the thing that we tried to focus on was to get to, you know, kind of the feed studies of these projects is literally probably 50 to $100 million worth of capital. And that is really, really tough capital to raise because you have no idea at that point if the project's going to be feasible or not. So the pre-feed, the feed. And then once you get past those things, all the money in the world, like every infrastructure fund in the world, you're contracted, you know, ready to go. You got your permits from the government. The money's there, right? So the, you know, the billions of dollars of debt and equity that you need to build the projects is there. You just really got to scrape together that first 75 million bucks to get, get the story put together and all that, which is a lot. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of money to kind of just roll the dice and I hope this works. And so as, as you can expect, that was really hard to raise. So we managed to get one deal done. And then by the time we got to like 2016, it was pretty apparent that that was not going to work. That business was not going to work the way that I wanted it to. Unfortunately, like looking back and, you know, admitting a mistake in my entrepreneurial career, I had kind of got like, you know, saw shiny stuff and in some ways abandoned the training business in order to pursue the, uh, the capital raising business. So at that point I was like, this didn't work, kind of got nothing. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna go back to the Delaware Basin. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, 
or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. So, yeah, which is the logical Israel, Guatemala, Colombia, Peru. Let's go back to the, the, the Delaware. Yeah, which is uh, <laughs> probably the most remote of all those places, you know, if you think about it. <laughs> go out to Mintone, Texas. It's it's the most like barren wasteland that uh, of all the international travel that I did. So in 2016, you know, I kind of re-engaged and got back and focused on what was happening in the upstream. And obviously the Delaware Basin had progressed a lot in that time. And you had some really big players coming in and starting to make big waves. Like there was, I remember that period, there was just, you know, announcement after announcement of all the big operators were really trying to, their investors were rewarding them for getting inventory in the premium almost at any cost, right? You remember back then they were being paid to grow, not necessarily to grow profitably. So, you know, there's just tons of transactions. So the thought was, you know, I still have a lot of contacts in the Delaware. I think I can go back out and, and buy some more leases. And, and I think what I'm watching is these operators are paying up for operations, like the, oper- you know, the operational control of a unit. And so if you've got a 640-acre DSU, they'd pay 20000 bucks an acre for it, but they would not pay that $20,000 an acre for the 40-acre piece that's in that same DSU because it's not an operated interest. You could buy that 40,000 acre piece for 2,000, 3,000, you know, 5,000 bucks an acre. And the thought, you know, it was very simple. Like it doesn't really take a tremendous amount of underwriting to think that if I can buy something for way cheaper, just because it's not achieving this uh, sort of scale premium that the operated stuff is getting, it's going to be in the same well, right? So these guys are going to drill a well, this 40 acre piece is going to, is going to be in it. And so that was kind of the concept. And I started uh, Corbin Development Group in early 2016, raised uh, a little bit of money, like kind of friends and family stuff here in Houston. And we went out and we started to do exactly that, you know, buying the 20s and the 40s and stuff like that in these big units with the idea. I mean, really and truly the idea at that point was let's get this stuff. Let's get a well drilled. Let's get it into the unit and then we'll go. Um, we'll go market it. Now I think it'll be worth more at that point, but that was, that was kind of it. And it was really just me. I mean, I had, you know, some buddies helping and stuff, but as far as like in Corbin development, it was just me and, and my investors. So I had to deal with them. So if you fast forward kind of to the end of 2016, I really thought that that was going to be a fun business model. And I thought I should try to raise some private equity money and actually do this on a larger scale. Cause we had had some success and we bought some, some acreage and got them into units and we're kind of off to the races. And so, I, you know, I'm going around talking with private equity people, that's when I, Mark Bisso at the time was with Oxif, had just backed Fortuna One. And he did, it was either a 40 under 40 or a podcast video or something like this. I didn't know him, but he did a, a video saying, I've just joined Oxif. I'm trying to build out a, uh, you know, a private equity, energy private equity team. And our, our objective is to back teams with smaller commitments. So I'm not looking to give 200, 250 million bucks. I'm kind of thinking like 75, 50, 75, 100, like smaller ticket sizes. And I thought, I was looking for like $50 million. I said, man, that's exactly what I need. So I called Mark. You know, we had a phone call or two. <laughs> What's funny, it's the first time we talked. I said, hey, I, I watched your video. I want to tell you about my business. And he was real nice. You know, he took the call. Uh, we talked a little bit. He asked a bunch of questions. But remember back then, non-op then was not anything close to what it is today. I mean, it's it's a very well understood, popular there's a ton of money in non-op today, and it was just not at all the case back then. It was still very much a new kind of untried, unproven thing. But Mark was uh, was open to the idea. He's like, I see, you know, this isn't something that a lot of people do, but I, I kind of see how this, I see what you're talking about. Let's let's kind of keep getting to know each other. So let's say that that phone call was on a Thursday. We were both going to be in Midland the following Tuesday. He said, okay, let's let's meet up in Midland at this coffee shop. We'll meet in person and keep the ball rolling. So at that time. My wife and I were 
trying to buy a new house because our family was growing. We needed a bigger house. And I was jogging a lot through different neighborhoods just to kind of check them out and stuff. And so at one point I'm like that Saturday, right? Between the Thursday and the Tuesday, I was, I was actually jogging through Mark's neighborhood. I didn't know it, even though Mark sometimes gave me a hard time that I was stalking him. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I run past, you know, it's like Sunday afternoon and I run past this family. It's a guy and his wife and they're pushing a baby stroller and stuff. And, you know, I kind of run past him and turned and looked at him. And I was like, that's the guy, that's Mark. Like I, I'd seen his picture on the website and I stopped him all gross and sweaty. I said, is your name Mark? <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of was like, you know, getting in front of his wife, like, yes, yeah. who are you? And I said, man, I'm Travis. We just talked last Thursday. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not stalking you. This is total coincidence. And so that's, that was the first time we ever met. And um, so we, we have the meeting on, you know, the next week in Midland, we kind of get to know each other, talk a little bit more. And this goes on for a few months, you know, Fortuna One was backed around that time and they sold at the end of 2016. That was a really quick company. And as it happens, there was just so much activity going on then that, you know, everybody was just buying acreage. So Fortuna One sold, Corbin, my company sold, we sold our acreage at the end of that period too. You know, Mark said, what are you going to do next? I said, oh no, um, hopefully you're going to give me some money and I'm going to do this again. And he said, well, I'm getting ready to, uh, you know, we've, we've had a, a good success with the Fortuna team. Why don't you come over and join them and bring your non-op business? And I said, okay, that sounds good. So we did that. And that's uh, in early 2017, we formed TNM Resources, which was basically Fortuna 2. We call it TNM. That's kind of the holding company. So um, Fortuna 1 was an operated business and you're the one who brought the non-op strategy. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, you know, it was sort of a combination deal. And originally with TNM, it was mostly going to be a central basin platform operator with kind of a smaller allocation to, you know, to my non-op strategy, just because it was new and we needed to see how it was going to work. So, you know, we started the company, we go and we put together some acreage on the central basin platform while at the same time, we're, we're starting to build out this Delaware non-op position. You know, fast forward through time, we got a position put together in Gaines County. Uh, we drilled a few wells. It just kind of wasn't really competing for capital against some of the stuff we're seeing in the Delaware. So we uh, we shifted focus and and moved kind of hundred. We kind of stopped making new acquisitions and stopped drilling wells in the platform and started to focus more of our efforts on the Delaware. And so that's really when we started becoming. We weren't yet, but we were on our way towards being a pure play non-op company. And we've always kind of been a non-op company with operational capacity, right? So we were still operating and owning the platform asset, but building out ourselves and our story and our portfolio as a non-op company. So TNM, we got to the end of that commitment probably, and we're starting to see that we're running out of money like in mid-2019. And so in the meantime, Mark and his team at Oxdef had spun out of Oxdef and formed North Hudson Resource Partners. And so we, you know, they took TNM moved over to North Hudson and we went and talked to Mark and we said, Hey, you know, uh, we agreed, you know, Mark had uh, been kind of watching, watching it. And we said, Hey, I think we need to keep doing this. Like we're still seeing some really great opportunities. It's really going well. Let's do another commitment. So in, I think it was October of 2019 was when we formed uh, Fortuna 3. So what we started there was TNM non-op was primarily Texas, probably 80-20 Texas, New Mexico. Fortuna 3, we thought, I think we need to move into New Mexico. You know, it's undisputable that the rock is better. And I think we can teach ourselves the differences about the regulations and the land aspects and all that stuff. So we moved into New Mexico. We started buying non-op. You know, we got... we got. And, to- and what's the strategy? Are you guys just through relationships participating in AFEs? Are you kind of putting together leasehold and bringing in development partners what how are you building these portfolios i'd say up to that point it was really kind of buying acreage ground game and we would buy acreage that we either had line of sight to development on the actual acreage itself or that we felt really really good that if we buy this piece of acreage we can trade it in to this development over here so in a way whether it was directly or indirectly we're always underwriting development and generally up to that point preferred. And I don't even think we had bought a wellbore only deal up to that point till. And you're taking what kind of positions are they, when you're taking these non-oppositions on the development, are they substantial or you're spreading your chips out and you're taking much smaller work interests? Back then I'd say our average was probably 6% working interest. And that, you know, it might be 25%. It might be 1%. We kind of try to have no less than 1% because that, we have found over the years that that's kind of a 
a critical mass that we need. Otherwise, if you get less than 1%, with some exceptions, it, it just kind of winds up costing more to account and do reserves and all that stuff on the interest than the actual PV value that it creates. So we like to be substantially above 1% if possible, but definitely not less than 1%. And then over the years, we've gotten more comfortable with, with bigger bite sizes, I would say. So as we have developed our own and improved our own underwriting capabilities and risk mitigation strategies, and equally as important, have continued to demonstrate to North Hudson and make sure that we've got their support and their their buy-in and their kind of, you know, acceptance of our underwriting capabilities, like we've gotten more comfortable with, with taking some bigger, more concentrated positions. And it's always a misgregation strategy, right? So, you know, it's, if you take a, a 50% working interest in four well borers, it's not the same thing as taking the same capital amount, but 15% working interest across 12 well borers, because if any one of those wells goes bad, it's going to hurt you a lot more when it's when there's only four of them than if there's 12 of them. And so it's stuff like that. That's, you know, we've got some strategies and processes in place that we use. And, and like in the education. So what I find interesting is, you know, on the mineral space, private equity starts to come in around 2014, 15. It sounds like private equity comes even later in non-op. For sure. And the education process is, is lagging minerals even. The lack of control and you still have exposure to, to cost is something that investors probably struggle with. Uh, I just did an episode with Glenn Adams. He's 40 years in the business and he's been doing non-op since the 80s. Mm -hmm. And his strategy has always been large non-op positions and you have these levers of control that are negotiated at the operator level. So very relationship driven. You, you know, that that's clearly not something that you can just kind of go and, and spread your chips out. You're more consolidated with who you work with. But talk to me about that education process with BISO and his turnaround to his LPs and investment committee and getting comfortable with the lack of control of a non-op strategy. Yeah, well, I mean, you made a really good point. The, the other way to do it, I would say, is exactly what you said, to come in with a really big interest, but negotiate upfront with the operator so that you've got more control. I'd say our experience in the basins that we were playing in, you know, starting out in the Delaware, it was so competitive that when you do that, in some ways, you're competing with other players in the capital stack who might have a lower cost of capital than you, because if an operator is going to do that, their argument might be, well, why would I do that with you if I can just go borrow the money or if I've got some other way to do the debt or to do the uh, to finance this this deal? So that that's certainly not the case every single time. But you know, from our experience, we just found that it was the way that we could do it was by competing at the ground level. That's just sort of the approach that we took. So it's definitely not to say that the other the bigger approach is is bad at all. It's just not how we in the past did things. We have gotten towards more of that. You know, when I get to when we get to talking about our current fund. We have kind of gotten more into some of that, but it's just not like the way that TNM and 1403 came together was was sort of more just competing on the ground game. So did you have exits along the way for for TNM or Fortuna 3? No, we would have like we would, you know, maybe strategically sell some some assets here and there, but never wholesale. So we still have TNM. It's still an active company and we're just sort of optimizing the portfolio, harvesting cash flow. We use that a lot. I mean, it's a great source of knowledge. It's it's a really great asset and uh, it's strong. It's a real healthy balance sheet. We've always been very prudent in our usage of leverage and, you know, hedging and all that stuff. So TNM is still there. Fortuna 3, I'll give you a quick kind of version of that. We started in late 2019. And then, of course, you know, in March of 2020, the world turned upside down. And we remember we had sort of a decision point where yeah, everybody was really scared, like us included just had no idea. And he thought that that's the way that things were going to be forever. And it's really hard to change your mentality when you're in that moment to think things are going to get better. This cycle is going to turn. This is the most extreme cycle we've ever seen, but it's going to turn. It's hard for you to think that. So, you know, we had some conversations and we thought, you know, we can either just sort of ride this out and see what happens or we're flush with capital. We've got a brand new fundraise. We could just get really aggressive and start buying stuff. You know, North Hudson was real supportive of that and said, you know, we, we obviously they, they, grilled us a lot. Like there's a lot of questions about how are we going to make sure that we're going to survive? How are we going to make sure that there was just a lot more questioning and challenging and of our story and our thinking and how we're doing things that needed to happen. But in the end, they were very supportive of it, which I really appreciate. That was, that was a big part of why we were able to keep going. 
And I mean, we just really, really got aggressive and we started trying to, and that's kind of when we were most particularly in, in New Mexico, because particularly right around this time period, okay, the moratorium gets put out and you, you have just Biden coming in to the presidency and then COVID. So that kind of triple trifecta yeah. was made New Mexico a, a very contrarian place to invest in, at least for Q1 to Q3 of 2020, yeah. right? For sure. Yeah. And I mean, it was definitely sort of, you know, the things you just mentioned were sort of strike one, two, and three. I mean, it would have been very justified to just kind of sit it out, but we managed to, you know, to keep going and to find reasons. We developed some really, really unique and helpful tools and and processes to help us understand and help us really kind of value those risks, like actually put a, a value fact, like a dollar factor on the permitting risk on, you know, so we try to understand like you got this per- federal permit moratorium, who is the operator of this deal we're going to look at? What is their positioning? Cause back then you like, you had no idea how it was going to turn out, but you know, we thought all these people are in DC negotiating, lobbying, trying to figure this out. So we're, we're factoring all that stuff in and we're building some really cool tools and processes to try to help us understand which risks were unacceptable, which were acceptable, which we could mitigate via our unique kind of tools and processes and stuff like that. And that allowed us to kind of keep going. And one of the big things that I think is, you know, a big part of my job day to day, but also our team's job. And we talk about this a lot in our company is, you know, we need to be earning our earning North Hudson's, you know, confidence every single day, because it's not, you know, it's not like a deal by deal thing, or, you know, like we do a good deal, and then they kind of trust us forever. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's on us to earn their confidence every single day. And part of what we did in 2020 was exactly that. Like every deal we looked at, we viewed it as a new deal. You know, it's not like we we do have a very rewarding and I'm very, very proud of our team, but also, you know, give a lot of credit to North Hudson for, you know, for supporting us in all the ways that they have, especially as we bring them deals and they need to prove them and stuff like that. But it's, you know, it's never something that we can take for granted. So we're always working hard to, you know, to make sure that we're demonstrating that we're thinking about risks and we're you know, mitigating them and also making sure that the pros outweigh, outweigh the cons in every deal that we do. Talk to me a little bit about buying in the non-op space through a downturn like that, because oil is low, you know, natural gas is a liability at this point, right? In the in the Delaware Basin, at some point you you can't really, but you prefer to flare it because it's actually costing you money to get rid of it. And you're still exposed to the cost. Do, do you find in those types of environments that the service costs, the service side of the business gets beat down to enough to where the margins are still okay. Because, you know, when prices run up, the economics on non-op get very, very attractive. But right behind it is the inflation of service costs. I think I've heard numbers as high as 60, 70% this year. And But if oil stays at 90 to 100 bucks, you can still make a ton of, mar- a ton of money there. Uh, but mm-hmm. with oil at 30 bucks, does it get super skinny? Is it more about you guys had that leasehold type strategy. So you're getting in at the ground floor at a really good cost basis and the development timeline is pushed out. And so by the time the stuff gets developed, pricing recovers a little bit. I mean, how are you juggling all that? Just curious to kind of walk through the headspace where you guys are at. Yeah, well, I mean, just trying to remember back then, that was pretty- Seems like 10 years ago, doesn't it? it? It does. And it's just, it's one of those times in your life that your brain like tries to forget, like it's like a stress sort of got a little bit of a PTSD, but you know, not, not really, but I mean, it's kind of, I, I do remember very clearly that I guess the first thing we do is, is just a much, much deeper dive on every single deal. We would do every scenario imaginable. And a lot of it had to do too, with making sure that we tried to align ourselves as best as possible with the operator's interests, right? So it's not in the operator's interest to, to drill this well. Let's say that the pre-COVID AFE was $10 million and they're going to drill, uh, you know, $10 million AFE that was underwritten at whatever, you know, something quite a bit above $30 oil. Are they still going to drill that well? They might drill it, but are they still going to complete it today? Well, maybe they'll duck it. And so we, there was a lot of we've always had really good pathways of communication with our operators. And so with lots of communication with them, like, Hey, if you guys drill this, are you going to complete it now? So that helped us kind of that just improving our information flow really helped us make a lot of those decisions. And it was kind of real time. So we're able to get information really quickly. Oh, Hey, they're actually not going to complete these wells until next year. We feel a lot better about the likelihood that the world's going to be different next year than this year. So, you know, we've got a, 
acceptable return here. It's not sexy or anything, but we want to own this asset. So let's do it. And, you know, we're not betting on the return of the price of oil or anything like that. It's not part of our business, but um, just, just kind of things like that, that would help us kind of feel better about the, the investment decisions we're making. But on, on the other hand, there, there is always the attitude that this is the best opportunity we're ever going to have. Like you got to buy in a downturn and it's really scary. And we need to, you know, make sure that we're being thoughtful and challenging ourselves and stuff like that. But this is also when we need to be buying. So there was always that kind of like pervasive attitude around both of us. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Yeah, because I just, you know, for the folks who do minerals and non-op, I'm being very general here. The devil's always in the details, but it's kind of like when prices run up super quick, non-op's the best business to be in. When prices go down, minerals is a better business to be in because that outside of time value money, you can afford to sit on it and you know, you don't have any of that cost exposure, right? And so it's balancing the two and figuring out the windows of opportunity to where the arbitrage is greater for either asset class. Um, you know, non-up is your world, is your business. So it's just, as I start to do this part of the podcast and just learn about the space more, just kind of curious how you guys view it. Obviously, when there's blood in the streets, you want to buy, but it's just a lot of different dynamics at play um, yeah, yeah. because you have that cost exposure on the development. Yeah, well, there is a, you know, it, there's a lag between if prices crash, which is a bad thing, and then uh, service costs crash, which is can be a good thing for us, at least on the operation side, they don't happen at the same time, right? So, you know, in the beginning, when we were buying assets, we were still having to underwrite them with the higher AFE costs. And, and to be honest, it really wasn't until later. What, what is that lag period? Like the the elasticity of that? Is it is it pretty quick or is it a slow adoption? Because I feel for our brethren in the service side of the business, I feel like they're the ones who get negotiated and beat down first and the quickest. Mm-hmm. And then it's harder for them to build their costs back up when things get good, right? Yeah. Negotiate yeah. it slow, but surely and, and climb that hill. Yeah. But what is your experience? Is this, let's just say oil goes from 80 bucks down to 40 bucks over a six month period. Is it a, a slow gradual thing or I don't know, over to you on, on the service side adjusting? Yeah, I think our experience on the downturn, it was probably two quarters when we started to see, when we started to get the field estimate cost in of these wells that were drilled and we started to see like, wow, these things are really, really coming in a lot lower than than what the IFE was. 
And it was probably two quarters. Then there was a, a big resetting of AFEs and it kind of stabilized through probably call it most of 2021. And so you reset it, not something that was quite as low as like the depths of COVID, you know, towards late 2020, like they came up a little bit as, you know, service companies have to survive too. And so there was sort of this happy medium that was found sort of in through most of 2021. And then as things started to increase late last year, and especially early this year on the price side, it felt quicker, but I would probably say it felt quicker probably because it was, uh, you enjoyed it the first time around when, when costs were coming down and you don't enjoy it when costs are coming up. So I guess we noticed it more, but I would say it was probably still another two quarters before we really started to see. And what's different too is there was sort of this nice happy medium between the operators and the vendors, service providers, because service providers coming out of 20 needed to survive. And I think um, operators, you know, saw that their costs were coming down. So, you know, I think that there was a little bit of a meeting in the middle and, and there's probably some pretty long-term contracts put in place around those things. And we've seen that there's been some protection, especially with the bigger operators that we're partners with who do have the scale and they can run, you know, multi-rig contracts and multi-frac spread contracts and things like that, that have been able to limit. But at the same time, I mean, costs have certainly increased. It's just not as much. Most of our partners, I mean, most of our portfolio is the exposures to bigger operators, EOGs and Meverns and Devons. And those guys have been a little more protected from that, just because I think that they were willing to pay up a little bit more last year, put contracts in place and, and get things agreed to over the longer term. Yeah, it's it's like the equivalent of a, a service cost hedge being locked in, right? So that that's a dynamic. That's interesting. The bigger the operator, the more they're able to negotiate those longer term things. And that's stability for a service company to know their equipment and people are going to still be active, you know, regardless of where the broader space is. Yeah, that's great. So do a quick recap then. What is so you haven't really done any large exits? What does the portfolio look like today in terms of acreage and well bores and you know and all and production and all that? And then what's the current fund you're on and and strategy and timeline of that, et cetera? Yeah, well, let me answer those questions kind of in backwards because that's probably the best sequence to do it. So at the end of last year, North Hudson raised a new fund called North Hudson Production Partners. We stepped in and and kind of were at a point to take over management of that, you know, earlier this year. So that's what we've been deploying out of, you know, and it's non-op as well. Yeah, it's non-op as well. So we're we're deploying out of that fund. By non-op deals, we've been been certainly a busy year. During 2020, we took over another asset called Winright Resources, which was an operated asset in the Texas Panhandle, Western Anadarko Basin. We managed that for about two years. We sold it for about six weeks ago. So that, you know, we're real busy with that and, you know, got that moved on to a new owner. So today, you know, if you think about it, and the reason I wanted to answer this question backwards is because we changed the type of structure that we have with North Hudson instead so instead of us being like a portfolio company, TNM was a portfolio company, Fortuna 3 was a portfolio company, we sort of reconsolidated and we're all in the fund. And so to the investor, it's attractive because it's a single level promote, streamlines things, makes it a little more efficient. You know, it's better for all of us. So it's just kind of a, an efficiency gain that that was sort of a win-win for everybody. And so if you think about it, like across the, the whole platform, the best way to think about our, you know, sort of family of entities is as one big bucket of capital. And that's what we're trying to, you know, we want to advertise and say, is, you know, we've got a lot of capital, you know, in and among all these different buckets, we're still actively investing, in some cases out of cash flow, in some cases out of new equity. But we've done uh, probably across the whole platform, north of $600 million worth of acquisitions in the last 12 months. So uh, it's been really busy. We probably own non-op interest in 1200 well bores. So, you know, and have you stayed in the Permian or are you stepping out on the non-op strategy? We've stepped out recently. We are in the Haynesville looking at other basins to, uh, you know, really expand that. So, you know, we've kind of just given that not only the, the size of the platform, but also support from investors, support from LPs, things like that. And the types of deals that we're seeing, uh, we have been participating in some larger marketed deals, you know, so we'll, we'll still have our ground game always, but, you know, we're, we're certainly now able to take some bigger swings and do some bigger deals uh, more so than we have been in the past. Yeah. And then what are your thoughts on, you know, from when you not started, cause you were, you're doing some interesting kind of non-op type stuff in the late two thousands, but let's start with Corbin forward where the non-op space was then to today. And I'll call it the non-op food chain has started to develop more in terms of an ecosystem of smaller guys up to the larger guys. You have, 
the rises of the world, NOG, Granite Ridge just just rang the bell and went public, establishing themselves as kind of the end buyers for the space. That didn't really exist before. Mm-hmm. So as I've talked to folks about their strategies, they said with investors, they would pitch the returns of their their past performance on the nano portfolios they put together. So hey guys, there isn't really a like a formalized exit here, but it's it's just a really good strategy and the returns are there if we just have to cash flow it out. Now, if all the stars align and you you have a an asset that can get an exit and you can accelerate those returns, that's another check mark that you can add to the discussion with with the LPs of North Hudson, right? So have you guys kind of as you viewed the involvement of this food chain and nano space start to solidify and has that influenced strategy at all or kind of how you go about building your asset to maybe exit it at some point? So I remember when we first started with Oxidef, TNM back in 2017, the question was always, if you're going to start a private equity-backed company, you got to have an exit in mind. And we, we just couldn't say that with the non-op yeah. strategy. It's like, I have no idea. You know, we're going to do this. There are a few people who do it. Grayrock was one of them already doing it. You know, Northern was public, but they weren't yet in the Permian. We, uh, we said, we're, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to underwrite it as if we're going to own it forever. And we've stuck with that. That's kind of what we've always, always done. So when we underwrite a deal, we don't you know, look at an exit case. Uh, when we raise a fund, we don't look at an exit case necessarily. And it's all about like, if we buy this, we need to be okay with owning it forever and just making our return that way. And that's, that's been fine. That's, that's really worked out well for us. And then to your point, if a sale opportunity does come along, then uh, yeah, that's a nice box that you can check. And you're going to run the trap and make sure that it makes more sense to sell than to not sell. Uh, sometimes that, you know, that window can occur. And so that's, that's just kind of how we've always thought about it. And I think we'll continue to think about it that way. You know, with, you made a point earlier about uh, the non-op space being behind the mineral space a little bit. And I really agree with that because I remember thinking that when Brigham and, you know, some of the minerals guys were, were going public and others were working on going public, there was this big effort, like, this big message was you got to educate investors. You have to educate public investors. And that was kind of the big push that all these guys were trying to do was help them understand how this business works, how they're going to get their returns, how the cash flows are going to work. So you'd see the management teams of those companies go around and go to conferences and things like that. And that needed to happen. And it had not yet happened really. I mean, here until recently, you're starting to see a lot of support and a lot of, you know, larger public investors are starting to see this. And that's, you know, largely due to the efforts of some of these guys that you just mentioned, uh, Northern, Rise to Granite Ridge, everybody going out and, and doing what it takes. Like, this is a really good business. You guys should pay attention to this. And I mean, it's basically you're an operator with vastly reduced GNA. The control piece is not, I mean, it's here's here's how we manage that. Here's how we mitigate the risks that come along with us not having uh, operational control. There's a way to do it. And here's how we've been doing it over the past and it works. And um, I think that that's been a really cool evolution to to see come together so do you think in that education piece at some point along the way non-op becomes its own investable asset class you know that's the ultimate goal of minerals is to kind of separate itself from upstream as a category and not be lumped in mm-hmm. minerals is different though right it's it's a real asset it, it's non-cost bearing you know the the inflation hedge you can't really argue that with with non-op because you're exposed to the costs do you think somewhere in between operations and minerals, there's an on-op category that cars itself out or it really gets lumped in with, with EMP at the end of the day. And it's just educating folks on this is a, an investment strategy mm-hmm. and these are the returns. And if you want to go into that, you, you have your eyes wide open on what it actually looks like. I mean, I think, I think we've already seen that. I think we've already seen it become its own investable strategy. Like, hey, you're doing, you're doing, you're investing in ENP in a more efficient manner via, you know, the reduced overhead expenses. But also, it's a different risk profile because of the diversity, because of the diversification, and and you're even starting to see that. That's maybe even a more important. I mean, obviously, the GNA efficiency is is pretty massive. Everybody likes that, and it, it's those are real savings. But the diversity, I think, is a big critical piece of, you know, the risk, the understanding of the risk profile that is what's allowing some of this like securitization type stuff to start happening. And that that's a really exciting new piece of the non-op story. Agreed. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's I think, the other thing too, which you touched on a little bit in the beginning of the conversation was, 
you know, if, if you try to have too many levers of control, you know, it could be a cost of capital type decision for a management team to go with some form of debt versus a non-op company coming in. And so you have to balance that. And, you know, as a follow on on that, how do you see non-op capital coming into space for development drilling in the stack versus uh, the alternatives of could be override financing, could be credit funds, traditional commercial debt, RBL type lending. The ABS structures are meant to be an alternative to uh, RBL financing, right? Yeah. And then depending on where interest rates are, it can be quite compelling from a cost of capital standpoint, but at a minimum, beholden to, to the covenants of banks. And, and, and nowadays with ESG, the the political headwinds uh, of banks is a lot of banks pulling out of oil and gas because the mothership doesn't want to be in oil and gas anymore. So where do you see non-op fitting into the capital stack and also just the ancillary benefits of non-op versus taking on uh, other kinds of capital? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, like if I think about it as pitching to an operator, say, I would probably actually frame it not as, Hey, we want to come into your capital stack at that, you know, between here and here at this point, I would actually say like, you've got options that of people who want to be in your capital stack at different, you know, willing to take on different risk, willing to take on different, you know, with different costs of capital. I don't actually view us necessarily as a source of financing first. I think first we're a partner, right? A partner who then brings in financing. And the really critical differentiator there is uh, we're in the oil and gas business every day, this is what we do, is we take the same risks that you do. We understand them. We're signing, we're not up, right? So we're signing up for your plan. If if we don't like your plan, then we're, you know, we're just not going to sign up. Like we're not going to do the deal, but you know, we're not going to, we're not going to come in and try to dictate how you run your business because that's part of our job. When we raise capital, you know, we've got money, and then money is not necessarily value. So we've got to get them to go translate that into value. And the way that we do that is coming in, providing capital to operators and saying, we're going to be your partner. We're going to be somebody who understands this business. We understand the risk that we're taking. It's on us. And we've got our own tools and strategies to manage that risk, but we're comfortable with this. So we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, ask you to insulate us from every single risk that you're taking and then sort of guarantee us a return we're going to take this risk alongside you. We're going to be in your development plan and, and let's, let's go. You know, we, we've all got controls and we're, you know, for us, it's a, an, a matter of making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, the buck stops with us and we are responsible for managing the risks. Like we can't blame the operator if something goes bad, if they blow their AFE or, you know, drilling goes bad or the type curve doesn't come in, then we need to look to ourselves first for, you know, to make sure that our, underwriting procedures account for that in our, you know, we've got a way to manage that, whether it's through hedging or whether it's through diversification or whatever, we've got to make sure that our risk mitigation tools and strategies are solid so that we can go present to an operator. We're going to be your partner. You know, we're not going to make you take risks that we're not willing to take. And, and that, you know, we'll form a relationship with you and we'll just be in a lot of ways, simpler, easier to deal with, less of a headache for you. That's why you should choose us instead of XYZ option that's going to be in your capital stack. Well, I think the volatility of, you know, broader capital markets and geopolitical situations and all that, the the debt and equity markets are going to be very sensitive to anything that's going on. And so you could argue that, you know, going to the non-op space for drilling capital and partnerships is something that can be somewhat uncorrelated to all those things. And there may be times where non-op is way more attractive than the the debt markets for those reasons. I don't know. Yeah, There's, for sure. You know, again, devil's always in the details, but I, I think that point is, is really well taken. That you're in business with someone who is alongside you doing it every day. So yeah. that's great. Well, listen, Travis, tons of fun catching up. Thanks for coming on and doing this. Yeah. Uh, to bring it all home and wrap it up, just a couple of takeaways for Fortuna slash North Hudson Capital Partners, how can folks work with you going forward? What are the ways you like to interact and deal size opportunity range? Just if, if anyone here is listening, what are the best ways for y'all to collaborate so they can reach out? We want to be drilling wells with operators. That's, I mean, we want to, we have capital that we need to put to work. 
more importantly, we have capital that we need to put to work accretively and, and profitably. So we're, we're very good at understanding what those opportunities are. So just, you know, we're really, really open, bring us deals, let us take a crack at things. Big, small, um, you know, like I said, we've done a lot of deals over the last 12 months. We have a lot of access to capital and we've got a really smooth process on our end. We can make decisions quickly. I'll, I'll tell you one story to highlight that point before we go. We just hired an individual who came from a big company in the first deal meeting that they sat in on. We were making, we were pitching for a $40 million bid that we wanted to put in on a $40 million deal. And so we, this is like a month ago, maybe three weeks ago. And so we're going through the process, you know, we get North Hudson on the phone, uh, we walk through everything, we've got a nice presentation, we show it to them, call takes about 40 minutes, they say, looks good guys, good luck. <laughs> and the new person who had joined us, he called me after the fact and he said, you guys just got approved for $40 million deal in, in 40 minutes. Uh, that would have taken six weeks at my previous company. So oh, wow. the point there, and that, that goes back to my point earlier about like, we got to win the support of our sponsor every single day, make sure that we've got their confidence and that they believe in us so that we can do that kind of stuff. And then we can turn around and offer to an operator. We'll get you a really quick decision. We'll move fast. We're not going to waste time on things that are unnecessary or just not really value accretive items to get a deal done. No. Awesome. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Travis, thanks again for coming on. Good luck with everything the rest of the year. Hopefully there's always that year-end rush trying to get stuff closed before December 31st so We're I imagine you guys will have a number of things up in the air with that so best of luck and hope to see you uh, in person again soon yeah thanks Tim it's really fun good catching up with you we'll talk soon hey guys thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast I hope you enjoyed the minerals and royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only Tim Powell and the minerals and royalties authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.